Worldwide, cardiovascular disease affects the lives of hundreds of millions. Dedicated cardio nerds everywhere are working hard to fight this global epidemic. These are their stories. Hello, cardio nerds. My name is Tommy Doss, and I am a Hopkins Internal Medicine resident, future cardiology fellow at the Cleveland Clinic, and a die-hard cardio nerd. I am very excited and proud to announce that I will be one of the chiefs for the upcoming Cardio Nerds Academy, where together we'll work to learn, produce, and disseminate digital education for everyone. So stay tuned for some awesome asynchronous medical education content coming down the pipeline. We hope you enjoy this phenomenal episode, which is the 10th part of our in-depth prevention series produced in collaboration with the American Society of Preventative Cardiology. We'll learn all about obesity from Dr. Chaddy Ndule, who among many roles and accolades is the chair of the Obesity Subcommittee of the AHA. Obesity is a potent risk factor for cardiovascular disease and is on the rise at an alarming rate. We thank you for subscribing to and supporting the Cardio Nerds. Our mission is simple, to democratize cardiovascular education. This podcast is not meant to be used for medical advice. The views expressed here do not necessarily reflect the opinions or policies of our employers. The case you're about to hear is HIPAA compliant. Now, let's dive into the episode. Hi, Cardio Nerds, Kareen here. Today, I have the honor of introducing my mentor, Dr. Chiadi Ndumale, who's an assistant professor in the Department of Medicine at Johns Hopkins University. Dr. Ndumale graduated from Harvard University School of Medicine. He completed his internal medicine training at the Brigham and Women's Hospital, where he also served as chief medical resident. He was chief cardiology fellow at Johns Hopkins University, and during fellowship training, he received an MHS, followed eventually by a PhD in epidemiology at Johns Hopkins Bloomberg School of Public Health. His research has been supported by career development awards from the NHLBI and Robert Wood Johnson Foundation, a Catalyst Award from Hopkins, the NHLBI, and an AHA strategically focused research network grant. He has received national recognition for his work, including a Young Physician Scientist Award from the American Society of Clinical Investigation. He has national leadership roles, including the chair of the Obesity Subcommittee of the AHA and editorial board membership on circulation and circulation research, and his research focuses on mechanisms linking adiposity to cardiovascular disease and strategies to improve prediction and prevention. Dr. Chiotti is the perfect person to join the prevention series. I've personally had the privilege and opportunity to train under Dr. Chiotti on many occasions, including when I was an intern back in internal medicine residency, and then again as a senior resident, and then most recently as a fellow in the cardiac ICU. We just had such a good time trying to help our patients together. And we're going to be talking about his mentorship roles with some of the cardiology fellows and faculty and specifically with Kareen. But he came over to me after he saw that I had such an excitement for the CCU and the hemodynamics that we were worked through with our patients. And he said, Dan, you're so passionate about this clinically, you have to be able to tap into this from a research perspective as well, like really double dip into this amazing passion. And that actually got me really thinking about what I ended up doing this last year, a lot of ECMO research and a lot of PEA research. So I just so appreciative of this unsolicited advice, which turned out to be really groundbreaking for me. So Dr. Jody, thanks so much for coming to the show. Thank you, guys. It's a real 
privilege to be a part of this wonderful series. And obviously, I've had the opportunity to work with all of you. And it's really a great privilege. Uh, so thank you for including me. Yeah, thank you, Dr. Ndumle. This is Amit. And I just want to second how excited we are to have you on this episode. Of course, you're an absolute authority for today's discussion, which will be on obesity and prevention of cardiovascular disease. But I don't think uh, I actually know, how did you get interested in studying obesity in the first place? Oh, thank you for that question. So I came to medicine initially really through a focus on community service when I was in high school and I was in college. And a lot of my community service activities focused on cardiovascular health and identifying risk factors. And those early exposures really kind of became the seed for my future career in cardiovascular prevention and public health. I decided to focus on obesity for really several reasons. So number one, it's really one of the greatest public health challenges of our time. And there is data that we can discuss later that demonstrates the obesity epidemic that's taken hold in our country really threatens to reverse the gains in cardiovascular mortality that we've achieved over the last several decades. There's also a disproportionate burden of excess weight and its consequences in minority and disadvantaged communities. That's close to my heart. And obesity, if you think about cardiovascular health, it's at the centerpiece of a lot of other very closely related comorbidities, higher blood pressure, hyperglycemia and diabetes, dyslipidemia, inflammation, and then of course it's closely interrelated to diet and physical activities. So really I think of it as the at the centerpiece of many of the cardiovascular health constructs and important from that standpoint. And then in addition to the fact that obesity is linked to the development of some major cardiovascular risk factors like hypertension, diabetes, and dyslipidemia, we also know that obesity has direct cardiovascular effects, particularly on the myocardium and predisposing to the development of heart failure. And these associations are actually fairly incompletely understood. So all these various aspects of how obesity is present in our community and how it's linked to cardiovascular disease really give me a lot of work to do in this important area. So that's kind of underlies my passion, and I'm just pleased to be able to contribute in some way. Well, thanks, Dr. Dumla. It's really great to hear how your interest developed from the community in the first place, and you know your work is feeding back into the same communities. Absolutely. So just so we're all on the same page, I wanted to start our discussion by going over how obesity is defined. And then I also was wondering if you could tell us a little bit more about the epidemiology of obesity. You mentioned the increased risk in an underserved populations. And so are there certain populations, be it sex differences or race differences that are more affected than others? Yeah, so that's a great question, Corinne. And I would say, well, first, I've, I've spent uh, whole days at obesity consensus conferences around the definition of obesity. And even then, sometimes progress is not made. So you can really get in the weeds. But at its core, really, obesity is excess and often dysfunctional adipose tissue that contributes to morbidity and to premature mortality. Now, the question that is relevant to that definition is what you can do to define obesity, and particularly at the population level. So the, the measurement or the metric that is most commonly used is BMI, which is kilograms divided by meters squared. And most of us, almost everybody really uses the World Health Organization classification of, of BMI. And BMI, normal weight considered 18.5 to 
less than 25, overweight considered 25 to less than 30, and then obesity is considered as a BMI greater than or equal to 30. And then within that, there's grades of obesity. So grade one of 30 to 35, grade two of 35 to 40, and grade three, which is often kind of uh, grade two and three are sometimes called more severe obesity, but grade three is BMI greater than 40. There's also another group of underweight where BMI is less than 18.5. That is a little bit in in America where our weights are a little bit on the higher side. Often our underweight population is confounded by kind of comorbid disease that's associated with cachexia, but in some other populations, actually, we often see higher risk in that group, but in some other populations that that's actually perfectly healthy. Here's the thing. BMI is far from perfect measure, but despite that, it correlates really nicely at the population level, both with the likelihood of clinical events and particularly cardiovascular disease events, and also with the likelihood of premature mortality. It's also accessible, which is important for any population level metric that you want to use and more accessible, for example, than a direct measure of adipose tissue quantity or function at the population level. So that's a commonly used metric and something obviously we use clinically. In terms of the epidemiology of a Obesity. So rates of obesity have really skyrocketed over the last few decades. And currently, about 70% of the population meets criteria for being either overweight or obese. And we're just around 40% now that are at the level uh, of obesity. We had a plateau for a couple years, but it really continues to rise and, and concerningly so. The reasons of why? Well, it's probably a combination of changes in how we eat, how active we are, how we exercise, definitely how we sleep. And this is also likely superimposed on several genetic and biological mechanisms that we're starting to better understand that all predispose to obesity. And this shift has really been a societal shift. We've seen the whole curve of weight shift over the last several decades. In terms of groups that are particularly affected, so yes, so minorities, particularly uh, African Americans and Latinos and Native Americans seem to have particularly high rates of, of obesity and have particularly grown in this regard. And we also see this in groups that are low socioeconomic status. We have higher rates of obesity. And a lot of that relates to structural challenges in communities, where you can buy food, where you can exercise, and various other things, including stress, that can contribute. And then we also know that there are some groups that develop severe metabolic consequences of obesity, so lots of abnormalities and comorbidities with obesity, even with small degrees of excess weight. So for example, Southeast Asians are a group that that we know that even a little bit of excess weight can be linked to a, a lot more insulin resistance and also cardiovascular consequences. And then just to put the epidemiology of obesity in context, we've seen downtrending rates of cardiovascular mortality uh, over several decades. And now we're starting to see, well, these rates have plateaued. And some subtypes of cardiovascular disease, for example, stroke, we're seeing an uptick in these rates. And the broad consensus is that these changes in our cardiovascular mortality trends are likely the early effects of this obesity epidemic that's emerged over the last several decades. So a really important epidemiologic, public health, and clinical challenge that I think very much needs to be addressed. 
Well, thank you very much. That was so comprehensive and really highlights obesity, especially when it comes to prevention. Dr. Chiotti, as you mentioned, currently the WHO classifies obesity based on BMI, and you even kind of alluded to some of the limitations. But I've had so many patients from the short gentleman who's just jacked up at the gym or people of other different body types of all shapes and sizes who just say BMI doesn't work for me. What are the limitations of using BMI to measure obesity? And are there benefits of measuring waist circumference instead for your individual patient. I get that BMI has global consequences and it's something that we could study on a population level. But when it comes down to personalized medicine, does it matter and should I change the way I approach the risk? Well, that's a great and very important question. So first, BMI, as you just alluded to, is a great population measure for understanding cardiovascular risk at the population level and for looking at trends in obesity over time. But the major limitation of BMI is that it does not reflect body composition. And body composition is pretty relevant to understanding the risk associated with obesity. So in terms of body composition, I often use the example of Ray Lewis, who's a famous linebacker for the Baltimore Ravens. And at his peak kind of athletic performance, his BMI was around 32. And now, of course, Ray Lewis had very little body fat at that point, And this was all really muscle mass but he would have fallen into the grade one obesity range if you were just using BMI. So I completely endorse and think it's very important to think about waist circumference because waist circumference is a, a really nice way of getting a better sense of body composition. It's a helpful measure that's quite underutilized. So why is it important? Abdominal obesity is what is actually most closely linked to insulin resistance and the various metabolic consequences linked to obesity, like diabetes, hypertension, inflammation. And that's why abdominal obesity or waist circumference is a core part of the metabolic syndrome construct. Unfortunately, waist circumference is currently quite underutilized. And we know both from our work and from other people's work that adding waist circumference measurements to the BMI measurements, particularly for those individuals who are in the overweight group, so BMI 25 to 30, and those who are in the grade one obesity group, 30 to 35, gives quite significant prognostic information, both for the likelihood of developing comorbidities and for the likelihood of developing cardiovascular disease. So, so I very strongly encourage measurement of waist circumference in patients, almost as another vital sign that we should be tracking to better understand risk, particularly when we think about cardiovascular prevention. Wow, that's really great to know. And I honestly can't remember the last time I saw a patient's waist circumference recorded in my clinic. So I'm going to have to start asking about that from now on. But all right, so we take it. Obesity is bad. But Dr. Ndumale, why is it bad? How does increased adiposity fit into the schema of metabolic risk and the metabolic syndrome? And hey, since we're cardio nerds, how does obesity and the metabolic syndrome affect the heart? So those are two very important and interrelated questions. So a lot of my work focuses on heart failure. So I'll start answering that by just focusing on the effects of obesity itself. And then I will kind of come back to the metabolic abnormalities piece. They're both very important and interesting. So first, it's important for people to understand that obesity just by itself is independently associated with myocardial remodeling, so various kind of changes in the structure and function of the myocardium, and also with increased heart failure risk. It's important because that contrasts a little bit with coronary heart disease and stroke. In those scenarios, much of the effects or the associations of obesity with coronary heart disease and stroke are explained by 
diabetes, hypertension, and dyslipidemia. And those comorbidities are really largely mediating or responsible for those associations. But for heart failure, you have this strong and unexplained association that remains even after you consider those conditions. And furthermore, it's important to appreciate that the risk, there's two kinds of two major phenotypes we think about for heart failure. Of course, heart failure with preserved ejection fraction or heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Where we're seeing this risk in particular is for heart failure with preserved ejection fraction in obesity. Not as much of an independent, actually really probably no real independent association in population studies for heart failure with reduced ejection fraction. Now, the mechanisms underlying this very potent association between obesity and heart failure are really not very well understood, which from my standpoint as a researcher, gives me a lot to work on. So I'll tell you a little bit of what we know, and then there's a lot that we don't know. So we do have a sense that there is some cardiac remodeling that occurs just as a result of kind of excess volume loads that go along with having excess fat tissue, as well as increased vascular resistance. That being said, that hemodynamic load is important, but we see a lot of variability in cardiac remodeling and heart failure risk among those with the same level of adiposity. So as a result, we know that there have to be other mechanisms involved. To get a better sense of that, I think it's helpful to look at animal models of mice that have been predisposed to obesity. And in that, what we see is that there are several inflammatory processes, both locally in the myocardium and then systemically, that likely contribute to cardiac risk. There are a couple of processes that I can get into, but I'll just give you an overview. One is lipotoxicity, which is basically the consequences of fat accumulation within tissues where it's not supposed to be. So for example, within the myocardium, we have another kind of lipotoxicity that occurs when fat is deposited in the liver, non-alcoholic fatty liver disease. There's also a systemic inflammatory component as well. And there are things that are secreted by adipose tissue like adipokines and cytokines. But these various processes in animal models seem to be linked to myocardial damage, injury, and myocardial fibrosis. And these seem to further predispose to more cardiac dysfunction and a likelihood of heart failure. In our work in epidemiologic studies, we've actually used some biomarkers of myocardial injury and myocardial fibrosis to demonstrate independent associations of obesity with these biomarkers. It gives us a little bit of confirmatory mechanistic insight, but there's also prognostic implications for heart failure. And we know that having those biomarkers in individuals with obesity is quite important clinically. So for example, when we use high sensitivity cardiac troponin, which is a biomarker of myocardial injury, those individuals who have elevated levels of that and severe obesity, asymptomatic in the general population, have a ninefold higher risk of developing future heart failure than individuals who are both normal weight and have undetectable levels of high sensitivity troponin T. So we know that there are these processes going on. The question of what are some of these underlying mechanisms that are leading independently from obesity to myocardial injury, fibrosis, remodeling, and dysfunction is really a big part of my ongoing work and work of several of my colleagues. But the other part of your question is also very important and near and dear to my heart, which is the question about the metabolic abnormalities associated with obesity. So the way I like to think about that is that there's a spectrum of metabolic risk among individuals with excess weight. So I've already mentioned that obesity alone 
is particularly associated with heart failure risk. But we know that when you start developing other metabolic risk factors, and the ones I'm focusing on here are the constellation of factors that we describe as metabolic syndrome. And also metabolic syndrome predisposes to about a five-fold higher likelihood of diabetes. So when you progress along that spectrum from obesity to developing metabolic syndrome to having both metabolic syndrome and diabetes, from our work, we know that, uh, and actually work with Corinne, we know that heart failure risk goes up quite substantially. In fact, you may have heard the construct sometimes of individuals who don't have as many metabolic risk factors as described as having metabolically, quote unquote, healthy obesity. And those who have a lot of these, like the metabolic syndrome and diabetes, can describe as being unhealthy. I don't really know that there's really any healthy obesity, given especially that even obesity by itself is associated with risk. But that construct has been used. And what we don't know is why some individuals are much more likely to progress along this metabolic risk spectrum, and some seem to be fairly protected. There's also some important demographic differences in this regard. So women, for example, have some protection against progressing along the spectrum, whereas minorities are more likely to progress along the spectrum. So this is actually a very active area of work for our group. And there's basic science studies that suggest that adipokines are potentially quite important to understanding these metabolic effects of obesity and why some individuals have all of these abnormalities and some do not. But we don't actually have definitive information about this at the population level. So we actually just got the AHA Strategically Focused Research Network grant specifically focused on examining this exact question of this progression. And we know that those people who progress along the spectrum are particularly prone to developing cardiovascular events and particularly heart failure. In terms of the mechanisms, a lot of the things I talked to you about, like the lipotoxicity, inflammation, those processes are exaggerated in individuals who have these metabolic risk factors. And there's a bunch of other processes that likely contribute as well. But both understanding this metabolic progression and also understanding how that leads to heart failure is a very important area of ongoing work. That was a really, really wonderful, comprehensive overview and super exciting. I'm obviously biased because I'm doing some of this work with you, but I really think there's just so much potential and so many unanswered questions. So really a great time in the field of obesity and metabolic risk. So with that wonderful introduction, I want to dive in and discuss some cases from our Cardio Nerds Obesity Clinic. Our first case is a patient, Mr. Dole Warren. He's a 35-year-old gentleman with obesity, BMI 32, and prediabetes. He works 14-hour days in a high-stress job in finance, drinks seven cups of coffee a day just to stay awake, and often eats heavy late-night meals when he gets home. He did join a gym recently through a corporate account and occasionally works out during his lunch break. How would you counsel Dole and patients in general about diet and physical activity? So thank you. That is a, I think, very helpful and actually quite common scenario to discuss. I see it with lots of patients all the time. So let's, I think, first highlight some of the challenges that Dole is facing. So he has grade one obesity based on his BMI. He's starting to demonstrate some of the 
metabolic consequences of obesity by having prediabetes that, of course, is a precursor to full overt diabetes. He has a lot of social stressors that are likely contributing to the challenges that he's facing. He's working very long days. He has a high-stress job. He's drinking lots of caffeine to facilitate that. And his late-night meals are a particular challenge. But he's clearly motivated to try to make some changes. And as described, he's joined a gym and is occasionally working out during his lunch break. So I think there are a couple of kind of core tenets to how I think about addressing obesity. And the most important thing actually is to address it. So we know from a lot of data that obesity is really under-addressed and under-discussed. But as I've mentioned, it's really at the core of so many aspects of cardiovascular health. So addressing it, I believe, is quite fundamental to our cardiovascular prevention efforts. So I think just recognizing it as a challenge and trying to address it is important. The second thing here I would say is that Mr. Warren is clearly in need of a significant lifestyle modification. We need to kind of generally change his relationship with his health in this circumstance. And there's a lot of structural challenges that I mentioned that are making that very difficult. And we need to kind of think about this holistically and address them each. It's not something as simple as giving a medicine to address his systolic blood pressure of 150. I would want to have this discussion about him. And the theme I would use is kind of taking some time to invest in himself. Right now, he's investing a lot in his work. He's trying to do a lot of different things, but taking some time to invest in himself and to schedule for himself is important. When I have my busy patients who have very busy work schedules, one of the things I actually try to get them to do, which has been very effective, is to schedule in time for various health activities. Sometimes that's for walks. So a 30-minute schedule block that's untouchable here, another 30-minute block that's untouchable here. And then also sometimes time for relaxation, meditation, and just de-stressing. And I find that when people put that in their calendar, that actually makes a very big difference, especially when people are really busy and have a lot of other competing demands. Some of the things that have to be addressed because of their physiologic challenges here are his stress and sleep. The kind of cortisol that's associated with his high stress levels, the sleep challenges really actually are an underrecognized challenge, but have very profound effects on satiety hormones, the things that let you know you're hungry or let you know when you're full. So I'm sure many people can relate to the idea of when you stay up all night or stay up late at night, all of a sudden you kind of get some munchies and you're like, hey, I feel like I should have a slice of pizza at two in the morning. And that's because the satiety hormones are off. All these processes also have an effect on metabolism. Also, his likelihood of exercise is going to be a lot lower when he has poor sleep and high levels of stress. So I think kind of making some decisions to focus on those things, how we can reduce some aspects of his stress, hopefully within his current job, and how we can engage him more on a healthier level of sleep are going to be important. I think focusing on the positive is also very important for patients. So he has prediabetes, and we know from the Diabetes Prevention Program and other studies that intervening among individuals with prediabetes has very clear clinical benefit and actually is associated with long-term prevention of diabetes when lifestyle modification. And by lifestyle modification, we're talking about changing how we eat, changing the timing of how we eat, changing how we exercise, and changing how we deal with stress. And all of those things are important.
physical activity is going to be very important for this gentleman. And I think one of the things I try to do with physical activity is try to make it more accessible. It's often just daunting. The activation energy is high because people think, all right, I got to get my gym bag and a nice gym outfit and get my gym membership. And it's great if you have those things. But sometimes that can seem like a pretty high bar, especially on certain times and days. But taking a brisk walk for a half hour during the day or a couple of half hours during the day can have very significant benefits if that's done regularly. Making a point of taking the stairs and walking a little bit further from your parking space to where you're going, all those things and just kind of being intentional about making physical activity something very attainable, I think is very important. Obviously, meals are quite fundamental to thinking about weight. And in this situation, I think are a big part of the challenge here. So one of the biggest things you have to do when you're in this scenario is plan. You can't really do eating on the fly and try to be healthy in these circumstances. And actually what often happens is the combination of stress and the combination of hard work, you basically sometimes will skip meals, you get hypoglycemic, and then you will usually eat something quite unhealthy that's readily available to you. So meal planning is very important and trying to be very intentional about the kind of things you take in, usually things that are higher fiber, less refined starches, and have a more even balance of the various kind of macronutrients that we want to have in there. And then meal timing is very important. Something I've become a big believer in over the last few years based on a lot of great data is the idea of not eating too late or the intermittent fasting is kind of the, I guess, the more fad term for this. But the idea of basically stopping your eating at an earlier time during the evening and then making sure you're not eating too early in the morning. And that constricted time of intake, first of all, probably lowers your overall consumption, but it also gives your body more time to burn off some of the excess weight. That's obviously hard to do if you're coming back from work late and then all of a sudden trying to eat something at that point. So if somebody's forced to stay at work, then I generally have tried to advise folks to find ways with meal planning to get some healthy options for them at an earlier time of the day, because that can really make a big difference. The last thing that I'll add is healthy snacks, because when those moments come where the sugar drops low, if you don't have something readily planned, it's very easy to go to the vending machine and grab some chips or something else. But if you have a higher fiber fruit or celery and peanut butter or something that's kind of readily available to you, that makes things a lot easier. So a lot of this is very intentional. When we do this in the context of programs, behavioral modification is a lot of things. But one of the big things we also think about is kind of just being very deliberate planning out everything, and sometimes keeping a log, which really helps with behavior modification. But the most important thing is to address, to discuss with folks, and to give them motivation about the positive benefits that can occur by making these changes. Wow, Dr. Chowdy, that was so practical and breaking down some key elements in this patient's history to help him address the future and optimize him from a prevention perspective. I personally suffer the midnight munchies all the time, so definitely have realized that that is a big problem. Now, before we jump into another CardioNerds Clinic patient, Dr. Chowdy, you are not only a prolific and master researcher, but you also are a phenomenal bedside physician, both in the CCU and in the clinic. You have such a gentle and effective bedside manner. Can you share some tips and tricks about how you approach the subject of obesity in your patients? I know from personal experience, which I've talked about more on our ABC's episode of prevention with Dr. Blumenthal and Dr. Feldman, how sensitive this could be. What is your approach of discussing this with real patients, with real emotions and the stigma associated with obesity? Yeah, I think that's a very, very 
important question and something that's also very near and dear to my heart. I'm currently chair of the AHA Obesity Committee, and this topic is one that we're spending quite a bit of time discussing. So first, I think that it's actually quite important to check biases in this space. So my view, and I think really the science-based view with regards to obesity, is that it really should not be considered an individual failing. And I think that one of the greatest problems we have is that people look at it as an individual failing and then try to address it as an individual challenge, as opposed to understanding the systemic nature of it. What I would say is that the way the system in our society is set up, how we work, what kind of food is available, what kind of limitations there are with regards to activity, how we commute, how we sleep, all of these various challenges actually, in my opinion, make excess weight the rule rather than the exception. And I think that this is something we need to address really broadly at the societal level, making it actually more of the default pathway to have weight maintenance and also to have healthier weights. And it's important to recognize, as I've said earlier, this is not just isolated cases. Our whole societal curve of weight has shifted over the last uh, several decades. It's basically going up across the board, and that's a systems and society-based issue. So I think that's very important. It, actually, one of the things that we're working on in the American Heart Association right now is in the Life Simple 7 construct, obesity is described actually as a health behavior. And I think it's quite important that we think about obesity as a multifactorial disease with behavioral components, but one that's much more complex, both from a societal standpoint and also from a biological standpoint. It's also important that once obesity develops, actually, there are a lot of molecular changes that occur that actually promote the persistence of excess weight. So there are a lot of things that make it that much more challenging. So certainly prevention is better, but once it exists, I kind of like to think of it as a disease challenge, just like any other disease challenge. And frankly, it's actually upstream of a lot of the diseases like hypertension and diabetes that we don't treat that way. We just try to address and manage and get it in a better place in a partnership with patients. But for some reason, obesity, which is at the core of that, we treat in a very different way. So I think that that bias is a very important thing that we need to be considering and addressing when we're dealing with our patients. And I think that tone, that kind of patient-centered tone and that less kind of blaming approach, I think is, is very effective when having discussions with patients and the challenges that we face that make it harder for us to keep weight intact. One other point I'll make in this regard, so we did some health screening actually in our employee population some years ago. And what I was struck by was that the overwhelming majority of individuals had an interest in losing weight when you asked about their various motivations. It's not that people don't want to, it's just that it's challenging. So trying to understand how to work together in a partnership to make that happen, I think is important. The other bias that I'll bring into play, which is an interesting one, is that the weight of the physicians themselves actually impacts how they discuss obesity. And it can happen in a couple of different ways. It can be the way I'm discussing the most is that when individuals have a higher weight than their patients, they're actually less likely to bring up the topics around weight modification. There's good statistical data on that. And then I think also there could be some times where individuals who are on the lower weight spectrum can 
potentially use language that stigmatizes weight and focuses on the individual aspect of it. So I think there's various biases that have to be considered as you're approaching this, but I think the best way is to think of it as a systemic challenge, a really complex disease with social, behavioral, and biological components, and one that we need to work together on, and that is challenging, and there'll be stops and starts, but I'm very encouraged by the fact that we've seen a lot of great outcomes with long-term partnerships with patients. Yeah, I really appreciate that, Dr. Ndumale. I've definitely found it challenging on occasion to talk to patients about their weight, but definitely appreciate leaving the stigma at the door and speaking with them with objectivity, care, and sensitivity. So let's go ahead and do that with our next patient. Chiquita Hernandez is a 48-year-old female with obesity. BMI is 34, hypertension, and diabetes mellitus. She has been trying to modify her diet for several months now without any success in reducing her weight. She's now coming with frustration from this trajectory and is asking about options for medical weight loss. So what are the current pharmacologic options for weight loss and when should we consider using these agents? Pharmacologic therapy is an important area. The time to consider it. First, you want to really focus on the lifestyle modification that we talked about. And then particularly, uh, you want to make sure that you're trying to problem solve and address barriers that individuals may be facing from a dietary or uh, physical activity or other social stressors standpoint. But when you're having challenges achieving goals, pharmacologic therapy is certainly a nice adjunct to lifestyle modification. We consider it for individuals who have persistently a BMI in the obese categories, a BMI greater than or equal to 30, or have a BMI greater than or equal to 27 with obesity-related comorbidities. And there are a few classes of agents. To be brief, Orlistat is an agent that kind of affects fat digestion. There is some sympathomimetic agents. There is the GLP-1 agonists, most notably liraglutide. And then there's various combination drugs like fentramine topiramate, naltrexone bupropion. So there are a couple of kind of key things that I'll mention about these. So one, they're generally underutilized. And there's a variety of reasons for that. I think one of the big issues is that they're actually not covered by insurance. And cost is basically an issue for most of these agents. Now, to give you a little bit of historical context, bariatric surgery was originally not covered until actually CMS made a point of, well, it was the precursor of CMS, but described it as a disease, obesity. And then subsequently, that actually led to coverage. So I actually think that this concept of thinking about obesity as a disease is not just more scientific, but it actually also has implications for coverage as well. So that's one issue. The other issue is side effects. There's certain agents, especially the sympathopimetic drugs, that tend to have a bit more in the way of side effects. And some of them can be related to like heart rate and blood pressure as well, which is obviously important to us from a cardiovascular standpoint. Some agents like Orlistat, even liraglutide may have some GI side effects as well. Um, so that's important. And then there's a question of how long you can use them. Some of the agents, like the combination drugs or the sympathomimetics in particular, you're supposed to only use for 12 weeks, for example, whereas other agents like Orlistat, even though they have more modest weight loss effects, you can use for a longer period of time. We should also think about the additional benefits of these agents. The only one that has been related to cardiovascular risk reduction in terms of outcomes is the GLP-1 agonist, so liraglutide, which is in this context of 
diabetes in particular. So we know it has some favorable effects on glycemia, also has some effects on cardiovascular disease, and it can be used for a little bit longer term as well. So that's actually probably among these agents, the one that I'm probably most partial to because of the both cardiovascular component, the tolerability, and the longer term use. But I think broadly, one of the biggest challenges here, in addition to physicians being comfortable with these agents, is challenges around cost. And I think that's something that has to be really addressed at a policy level for us to have more tools in our arsenal to help with obesity. Dr. Nduma, I just wanted to ask, you know, I think something like liraglutide is such a fantastic option because many of these patients do also have diabetes, even though I know it's approved for obesity independently. Practically speaking, do you consider pancreatitis to be a contraindication? I know there was some back and forth or conflicting data about that. Yeah, currently, I don't consider it necessarily a contraindication yet. I would say I consider it a relative concern. So I wouldn't say it's necessarily a direct contraindication, but it would be something that would give me some pause. Gotcha. Thank you. So our next patient is Miss Rebecca Del Monte. She's a 55-year-old female with class 3 obesity, BMI is 42, diabetes with an A1C of 9%, and obstructive sleep apnea. She's been struggling with her weight since her early teens. Unfortunately, she recently lost her brother, who had also suffered from obesity and died from end-stage renal disease on dialysis, in addition to several other chronic comorbidities, including heart failure with preserved ejection fraction. So we talked about this a little bit already, but what do we know about the role of bariatric surgery in cardiovascular disease prevention? Does weight loss through bariatric surgery provide a differential benefit over other forms of weight loss? Bariatric surgery is probably the most powerful weapon in our obesity arsenal currently. So bariatric surgery can take several forms. It can be open or laparoscopic, laparoscopic being more common currently. There is the Ruan-Y gastric bypass surgery that's associated with a fairly marked weight loss, nothing more potent than that than the BPD diversion surgery, which is not commonly done. So Ruan-Y is a pretty powerful tool. Then there's the sleeve gastrectomies and then the adjustable lap bands. The sleeves are more common right now because the adjustable lap bands have a bit more in the way of complications associated with them. So in terms of the role of bariatric surgery, we have some pretty nice prospective data around bariatric surgery in several regards. Number one, it's associated with very profound weight loss, much more weight loss than we typically see for lifestyle modification efforts. Number two, it's associated with improvements in various comorbidities. So often with remission, at least for a time in diabetes, reductions or remission of hypertension, improvements in dyslipidemia, and improvements in many other comorbidities, and also other physiological processes like inflammation and endothelial dysfunction. And we also know using prospective data from a lot of matched studies, the most prominent of those is the Swedish obesity study cohort. We know that when we compare individuals with obesity who have undergone bariatric surgery to those with similar weight levels who either just received standard care or even had a more aggressive lifestyle modification program, we know that bariatric surgery is associated with markedly reduced risks of future cardiovascular disease events and also markedly improved survival, so lower mortality as well. And we have seen risk reductions in the realm of 40 to 50 
to 60 in some studies are usually around 40 to 50 percent for uh, myocardial infarction. Uh, and most recently, uh, we've seen uh, significant risk reductions for heart failure, which, as I've described, is a pretty major challenge. So we know that Barrett surgery is a very powerful way of reducing cardiovascular disease risk. It's worth stating that lifestyle modification is obviously very important, obviously accessible for people in the population, and has been linked to various improvements in obesity-associated risk factors. But thus far, we don't actually have outcomes data linking lifestyle modification to reduced cardiovascular disease event rates. So baritic surgery kind of wins out from that standpoint. Now, in terms of differential benefit, so my sense is that most of the benefit for bariatric surgery over lifestyle modification, for example, relates to the magnitude of weight loss. And I think the data largely bears that out. There are two major subtypes of bariatric surgery. Really, there's the kind of a restrictive component where you're just basically reducing the size of a stomach pouch. So for example, a sleeve gastrectomy works from that standpoint. Or there's the malabsorptive form where you're basically bypassing some components of the intestine. So the RUNY has both a malabsorptive and a, a restrictive component to it. There are some additional benefits of the malabsorptive approach. I think where a lot of the GLP-1 idea came from, because we've seen the GLP-1 changes and market changes in insulin resistance that happen even before the onset of weight loss and people undergoing malabsorptive surgeries. There's a lot of theory behind that. But at the end of the day, I think that there may be some additional benefits with some kinds of bariatric surgery beyond weight loss. But generally, I think most of the cardiovascular disease benefits, event reductions that we're seeing are related to the magnitude and the reliability uh, of weight loss. The one other point I'll bring up, obviously, this woman who's very concerned about her health and has uncontrolled diabetes and obstructive sleep apnea, which is also another very important obesity-associated comorbidity, I think bariatric surgery is a good option for her. But the other piece that's important to highlight is that she's been struggling with her weight since her early teens. And one of the things that I'm focused on from a research standpoint is the importance of your weight history. And we actually know that while adult weights are very important, your historical weights actually add a lot more prognostic information so that if you take into account two individuals at the same level of adult obesity, the individual who's had longstanding obesity, like this uh, individual since their teens or young adulthood, probably have an almost twofold higher overall risk of cardiovascular disease events. So the history of weight in this scenario puts her at greater risk and is an important thing to consider as well when thinking about the aggressiveness of the strategy. But I think bariatric surgery here could have some profound effects for somebody in her situation clinically and would have those additional benefits that I described. Thanks for going through that, Dr. Ndumale. And I have to say that the area of metabolic surgery for management of the, the syndrome is going to open up a lot of doors for a lot of people. I, say after the Stampede trial, I almost started thinking of type 2 diabetes almost as a surgical disease as much as a medical disease. And I'll give a shout out to the group here at the Cleveland Clinic with Elia Minion and uh, Steve Nissen who have done a lot of great work in the area. They published a large observational study in JAMA where they essentially compared nearly 2,300 surgical patients with over 11,000 controls with obesity and type 2 diabetes. And the 
caveats of observational studies aside, they reported over a 40% reduction in all-cause mortality after propensity matching and 62% reduction in heart failure and also significant reductions in stroke and renal endpoints. So on the basis of that, they essentially devised a risk calculator where you can plug in all the patient's information, demographics, comorbidities, and it'll give you their 10-year risk of all of these important endpoints with and without bariatric surgery. And I've definitely found that very useful as a theoretical risk estimation for counseling patients in, in my clinic. I don't know if you if you come across that or have any perspective on using this kind of thing to counsel patients around going for a surgery. I think it's a great idea, honestly. I think that even when we're thinking about bariatric surgery, BMI greater than 40 puts you within the acceptable criteria for undergoing surgery, but then it's a lesser weight. BMIs of 35 or more with comorbidities are also a consideration. But I think that the greater the degree of associated risk, it's likely the case that greater the benefit. So I like the idea of risk calculators. And people uh, are very much trying to understand when do I pull the trigger for such an intervention. We have a session coming up at the American Heart Association actually on this particular topic where we're going to be bringing together medical and surgical doctors to discuss this. And I think that the more that we can kind of target this to the appropriate populations, the better. And I think it's not really a question of overutilization. It's a question of underutilization. Right. We need a little bit more validation in this regard, but I think identifying those high-risk groups is probably going to be a promising way of helping people understand where this bariatric surgery intervention will be most helpful. Well, definitely an exciting area for further research. And for our audience, we'll include the link to the risk calculator in the episode description. So this was an incredible discussion. Dr. Ndumle, it was great to hear how you got interested in the topic in the first place and going through all your teachings in the area. But let's ask you our prototypical cardio nerds question. What makes your heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention? What makes my heart flutter about cardiovascular prevention? Well, first and foremost, given my roots in community health, the idea of addressing these challenges at the root and preventing cardiovascular disease before it happens is very exciting to me. Within the obesity realm, I've kind of highlighted some of the key questions that I would love to continue to hopefully provide more insight about. So the understanding the mechanisms by which obesity leads to greater myocardial dysfunction and heart failure risk, and also understanding the why some individuals have more and some individuals have a less likelihood of having metabolic risk factors in the context of obesity. These are very key questions that I'm very interested in understanding. And one of the reasons in terms of heart fluttering is because I would love the idea for those insights to begin to inform novel therapeutic strategies that we could then apply, certainly broadly, but also to those communities who are at greatest risk in this regard. So I think that that's really a key aspect of prevention that I'm very interested in. Something we didn't really spend much time talking about today, but is also an area of interest is how we deal with obesity in those individuals who have existing cardiovascular disease. So the secondary prevention component of this, and there's this whole concept of an obesity paradox where in people who have existing cardiovascular disease, seeing not elevated rates and sometimes lower rates of mortality in those with grade one obesity in particular. This is an interesting area. It has implications for how we approach this clinically, this population, those individuals who are in need of secondary prevention. And I think some more insights there will be informative to us from a, a clinical standpoint. And then I would say also, and, and this reflects some of the work that Corinne and I have been doing, obesity doesn't occur in a vacuum. As I've mentioned, it's 
closely linked to a lot of the other risk factors we think about in terms of dyslipidemias and diabetes and hypertension and inflammation. And then also, of course, things like physical activity, which our group spends a lot of time looking at and diet. So all these different interrelated factors have actually kind of encouraged my group to start focusing more broadly on the concept of heart failure prevention globally and holistically linked to obesity and other related modifiable conditions. So I think a great goal will be generally trying to help reduce population burdens of of heart failure. And then by addressing the obesity epidemic, hopefully a bit more effectively contribute to getting that curve back in the downtrend in the direction that it should be going for our communities and country. Wow, Dr. Johnny, this is absolutely inspiring. And it is such a pleasure to have you on the show. Your time is so valuable, and we are just so grateful for it. Uh, This is time well spent. And it's really quite a a pleasure and an honor to be a part of this broadcast. So thank you all very much for having me. This is Ahmed Kara. I am president of the American Society for Preventive Cardiology and professor of medicine, director of preventive cardiology at UT Southwestern Medical Center. I want to first thank the Cardio Nerds podcast. What an amazing job these folks do and really thankful that they've elected to do this prevention series. Prevention is so important and so fundamental to all that we do in cardiovascular medicine. And at the American Society for Preventive Cardiology, we're delighted to co-sponsor this series to really promote what they do, to share with all of you about the wonderful world of prevention and all the great experts that they're going to bring on these podcasts. We hope you get a lot out of this series. And if anybody wants to learn more about prevention, please reach out to myself or any one of these excellent speakers they have coming up. We're all pretty passionate about prevention, and we certainly want to help others learn about it too. Thank <laughs> you.